Welcome to the Highland Good Food Podcast. I'm Emma Whittam and I'm delighted you've decided to join us today. At the Highland Good Food Partnership, we aim to take a holistic overview to the food system, to embrace its diversity, complexity and its interconnectedness. And each week I'm privileged to meet new, inspiring people doing their bit, following their passion to improve the Highland food system. It never ceases to amaze me how significant food is to our culture, our well-being, our environment and our region's prosperity. In this episode, you're going to hear from three incredible people, all making a difference. Their passion unites them, but their areas of work are so diverse, this highlighting the wide-ranging efforts and commitment we need to achieve our vision of a good food system. First, you'll hear from Douglas, who's the founder and coordinator at the Highland Food and Drink Trail, and is also the co-founder and co-owner of Bad Girl Bakery. The subject of these podcasts has been one of innovation. Now, this is a subject I would quite enjoy talking about a lot because I've been involved in so many innovative projects that really look at every stage of the whole farm-to-fork ideal. But what I want to talk about just now is the Highland Food and Drink Trail. Now, the roots of this go back to about two years to when Bad Girl Bakery were wanting to put some street food out on Falcon Square in Inverness. It seemed like a simple process. We had the catering truck. The Eastgate Centre wanted us there. It should have been simple. And of course it wasn't. And we ended up with all sorts of discussions with Highland Council, with planning, with all sorts of things, trying to make it happen. And what became clear was that street food in Inverness was something that couldn't really happen, which made Inverness very unusual among cities, because most places you go, there is a healthy street food culture. So as a result of that, we got talking to various people within the the council who were interested in developing that side of the city. And they saw it was was something that was important for the city's identity. Now, to cut a long story short, we ended up putting out three street food trucks in the high street just before Christmas. And feedback from local businesses, from the public, from everyone, was that actually this was a really good thing and really added to the city centre. So plans were made from that point onwards to, to start looking at Inverness in terms of creating a street food culture. But of course, what happened next was COVID and lockdown. So that really put an end to those conversations. But what it had done was brought together a group of people within the council who were keen to see things changing. So in about April 2020, conversations really started talking about what was going to happen next. I don't know if you remember, it was April 2020, we'd been in lockdown for a month. The idea of lockdown lasting three weeks was clearly not going to be the case. It was going to last an awful lot longer. There was no sign of vaccines or anything like that. So we really had no idea what the summer was going to look like, whether there would be a summer. And really what would happen to the hospitality businesses that had had to close down. Now, the conversation started looking at the broader issue with the high street. Like many other high streets in the UK, Inverness High Street had been declining quite rapidly over the last decade or so. And the the whole COVID lockdown thing had really, really sped that process up. Now, what we needed was some sort of innovative solution that would help with the recovery of specifically hospitality businesses, but also Inverness City Centre as a whole. I know that Scotland Food and Drink had identified food and drink businesses as being the drivers for regeneration in town. It's not something you can get online. It's something that you experience, something you go out to enjoy. 
So we started looking at what factors do we need to look at to allow hospitality to recover from COVID, to flourish and to create new businesses within the city centre and really make the city centre somewhere that people would want to visit, that people would want to spend more time in and people would want to spend money in. So hanging over the background of all of this, of course, was Brexit. Again, at the time, we didn't know what it was going to look like. But the worst case scenario was going to be a shortage of supplies, shortage of ingredients from Europe, a shortage of staff from Europe. So it added an additional level of uncertainty that we wanted to look at. So we had this idea that what we needed to do was encourage people to go out and eat, encourage people to use these hospitality businesses when they were able to open. Now, looking at those businesses, well, actually, we didn't really want to spend time with the McDonald's of the world. What we wanted to do was identify the small local independent businesses. And of course, the the hook that we decided to hang things on was the idea of local produce. We knew that even at that point within lockdown, there was a, a far greater awareness and a far greater interest in local produce, local businesses. So how do we capitalize on that? How do we get businesses to use more local produce? And how do we make that much more of a thing? We know you're working with people like Visit Inverness, Loch Ness. We know that people are coming to the Highlands partly because of the reputation that the food has. So if someone was turning up in Inverness, where do they go next? Where do they go to try some of this local food, some of this this fantastic seafood or a fantastic game or fantastic beef that's famous throughout the world? So from these conversations, we started putting together this idea that actually wouldn't it be nice if there was a a set walk, a trail that would lead you around Inverness that would take you past a whole range of different restaurants, cafes, bistros, things of different price ranges, things to do with different menus, but have a simple way for visitors and for locals alike to actually identify where they were going to have dinner that night. And the idea is we wanted to bring in People who would otherwise not go into town. People going in to do maybe their monthly Tesco shop. Well, actually, why not make a day of it? Why not do your Tesco shop, but then go into town, have lunch, hang around, visit some shops, have dinner. Spend more time. Go in there once a month, twice a month. For those people who live in Inverness, well, actually, why not a treat once a week? So we started putting this together, this idea that actually if there was a walkable route bracketed by footbridges, it would encourage people to wander around. We based this route around the Inverness Castle because we've got the river there. It's the prettiest, it's the nicest bit of the town and actually it's got a lot of really good restaurants on it. Now, it doesn't cover all the restaurants in Inverness and I hasten to point this out. But one aspect of the whole thing was how do we get new businesses? We've got all these empty shop units in town. We've got all this interest that's developed up throughout the, the COVID lockdown in local food. All these wee businesses have started up doing home delivery. How do we capitalise them? How do we give these people a leg up and give them a a chance to get a a viable business up and running? So our solution to this was to have a dedicated street food zone. So going back to the conversations that we'd had to start with, we had this idea that a specific area where you knew that any time you were uptown, you could go along there and watch food being made, smell it, make a choice but also allow different members of the family to eat different things. It's all part of the experience of walking down the riverside, testing things, seeing what's around. And the idea with the street food zone was not just street food vendors. I mean, you have to remember, there aren't that many street food vendors in the Highlands, largely because 
there's no city that has a street food culture in it. Hopefully that will change before too long. We want street food vendors there, but we also wanted new businesses. We can supply stalls, we can supply kit, but all these wee businesses have started up off COVID. Let's get them out onto the street, let's get them meeting their customers, let's get them building up cash flow, building up a brand. So when it comes to looking at premises in Inverness, they can go to the bank and say, well, actually, here's our cash flow, here's proof of concept, here's a brand that everyone recognises, let's go for it. It's like the third aspect of the street food zone is pop-up restaurants. There are restaurants that are really, really good, doing really interesting things all the way through Inverness, but also all across the Highlands. Now, how do people know about it? Inverness has got the biggest concentration of people, biggest concentration of tourists and things. So from the point of view of established restaurants, spend a weekend with the the other street food vendors, showing people what you can do, giving them a taste of what it is. So they know next time they're looking for a treat, they know where to go. So together we've got a, a footpath, if you like, a signposted trail through Inverness. It's about one and a half miles long. It's easily walkable. It's very accessible from all sorts of points, but it's got all the best little traders in Inverness. It's got street food people, alfresco people, little cafes, bistros, restaurants, it's got all of that. But the idea is, anyone who lives in Inverness, anyone who lives near Inverness, or anyone visiting Inverness for the first time, has an easy way to find out what's on offer and be directed to the best that we've got. So that's the plan. That's what the trail's all about. And hopefully within the next few weeks, you'll be increasingly aware of it. We'll have a big media push. It'll be in the papers. And if I'm doing my job correctly, it will be constantly on the edges of your uh, perception on social media and the papers, everything like that. So I do hope you enjoy it. I'm sure you'll all agree that Douglas is doing a grand job of connecting people to good local food. So make sure the next time you're in Inverness, if you check out what the Highland Food and Drink Trail has to offer. Next, we're going to hear from Birgit, who is a community paediatrician based at Moor and has a vision of a community garden at the hospital. My name is Birgit Rieck and I'm a community paediatrician in NHS Highland. And I would like to talk to you about a vision that we, a group of volunteers, have in setting up a garden project on the site of Rigmore Hospital. The idea originated during lockdown last year, when my partner Alan and I realized how restricting it was living in a one-bedroom flat in the second floor. We realized what a luxury having a garden is and how much this is a reality for a lot of people who are living in flats and are not able to readily enter green spaces. We had grown vegetables in the past and had started to grow seedlings on our windowsills and with lockdown becoming more permanent, it became clear that we had to think of a place for those seedlings to go. And talking to one of my colleagues and friends, Dr. Penny Noel, she suggested to grow vegetables in the inner courtyard at work. I asked my managers and they were happy for us to go ahead with that. Spending more time in particularly the inner courtyard at work, but also the direct green spaces around it, it became more and more apparent what an incredible potential that site has. 
The building complex comprises of three buildings, which include Morven House, the Phoenix Centre and Burnie Centre. And those buildings house clinic rooms for acute paediatrics, community paediatrics and the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service. Thinking of creating a garden around those buildings became more and more of an exciting idea and vision. Looking at the site, we split the site up in four different sections. In the middle of the building complex is an inner courtyard, which we thought would be ideal to turn into a staff well-being garden. At the back of the building is a confined area which would be suited for a therapeutic garden. We have then a side area between the Phoenix Centre and the Burnie Centre, which would be ideally suited for an outdoor waiting area. And we have the overall green space around those buildings, which could also be developed. Looking at the staff well-being garden first, we felt improving staff well-being would be such an important thing to do, particularly since we are looking after so many children and young people. And the more we look after ourselves, the more we are able to provide and care for others. We currently have some seating within that area and we have an island with a couple of trees and shrubs within that inner courtyard. And our vision is to set up a much larger seating area for staff so they can sit outside for their lunch breaks and, and breaks. To surround that on one side with growing space, which we have started in barrel planters. On the other side, that island could be turned into a forest garden with lots of foraging opportunities for herbs, for fruits, for perennial vegetables, with a small path surrounding the forest garden. Beyond that, we would seed wildflowers and embed a couple of outside workstations into that. The confined area to the back of the building would be ideally suited for a therapeutic garden. Thoughts again are to provide wildlife habitat, to increase biodiversity, to plant trees, shrubs, hedgerows and perennials, with creating secluded spaces which provide privacy, containment and a sense of safety, which could be used for our therapists to work with children and young people. The area between the Bernie Centre and the Phoenix Centre could become an outside waiting area with seating area, with fruit trees, soft fruit, vegetables, but also outer education features, sensory features which provide exploration, play and interaction opportunities for children and young people. And then the overall side we're again trying to improve habitat for wildlife, to improve biodiversity, to grow hedgerows, to grow orchards, to grow soft fruit, to grow vegetables and particularly perennials and flowers, possibly create growing spaces for community groups, for the close by primary school and provide a lot of seating opportunities for staff, for our patients and their families, but also for the community to sit in the green space and to connect to nature. 
we're hoping to also incorporate possibly some art features within that and again have opportunities for exploration and play on site. The hope would be in the long run to employ a garden facilitator or even horticultural therapist who will provide events and sessions that engage the children and young people, staff and the wider community in activities around nature connection, well-being and health. To realize this vision, we're very keen for our staff, for our children and young people particularly to become involved in creating and designing the space. How amazing would it be if we had the children and young people grow vegetables on site, design features of the gardens and potentially breaking down some of those barriers or relieving some of those anxieties around healthcare spaces and attending clinics in our buildings. Imagine how much easier and more enjoyable attending a clinic in our spaces would be if a child or young person arrives at the site and is able to explore maybe an outdoor labyrinth or sensory walkway on site before attending the appointment. Being able to come out after the appointment to engage in outdoor play and maybe even picking some fruit or veg to go home with or for the picnic on site before heading back to home or school. There is plenty of evidence that shows how important connection to nature is for our health and well-being and for us functioning well. Therefore, creating a green space around our workplace and around a healthcare facility for children and young people just seems such an essential part in promoting health and well-being. And you never know what starts off as a garden project around our building complex might serve as an inspiration and motivator to extend this possibly to the whole Rigmore Hospital site and with that have a major impact on the community, on visitors, on staff and particularly on our patients. I love Birgit's holistic approach and as we build our natural health service, initiatives like this are invaluable, creating this lovely green space for all. Birgit and the team of volunteers work with incredible Edible Inverness who are doing amazing things across the city and working with a variety of partners and Birgit would like to take this opportunity to thank them for their support. So now we're going to hear from Nick from Open Seas. We are a research and campaign organisation, Open Seas, operating in Scotland to promote more sustainable fishing and seafood. We come at this from the starting point that Unfortunately, Scotland's marine environment is not in good shape. You know, there is a screeds of evidence that uh, not least the recent publication of the Scottish Marine Assessment, which shows that the ecological condition of our seas is in decline. The assessment highlights that marine biogenic habitats, the extent and distribution of those habitats is still declining despite the establishment of marine protected areas and that many commercial fisheries are not being fished within sustainable limits. At least half of all our commercial fisheries 
are not being fished within sustainable limits. And so there's a lot that we can be doing differently and better, and that it's really just a question of how we get from A to B and do that in a fair and reasonably urgent way. We're of the view that our fisheries are fundamentally not in good shape. We used to catch an abundance of a wide variety of different species from our coastal inshore fisheries. You know, there used to be seasonal fisheries for a wide variety of different species of fish. And those fisheries have declined through basically a period of intensification and industrialization of the way that we harvest fish from the sea. If you speak to many people who are connected to the fishing industry, certainly those from the older generation, they will freely talk about the decline in the fishing and the loss of both jobs and the loss of fish from our sea that came from that period of industrialization and overfishing. Boats got bigger, more powerful, more efficient, and were able to catch too many fish. And that led to the collapse of many fish populations. And some of those populations have never recovered to this very day. West Coast cod is a really strong example of this problem. You know, international science says do not catch cod from the west coast of Scotland because the spawning stock biomass of that fish population is in such poor health. And yet we are continuing to catch cod because it's a bycatch in bottom trawl fisheries which continue to operate in our coastal waters. So we are fishing against scientific advice and that is suppressing the recovery of fish populations that ultimately could recover and provide a sustainable fishery to harvest in the future. So we are a research organisation. We look at data and we try and make sense of publicly available data to assess the impacts of marine protected areas on fisheries landings in proximate ports to see whether there's a negative or a positive impact on the fishing industry through those management measures. And we also do more direct investigations looking at the physical impacts of fisheries on the seabed. So, for example, scallop dredging, which is a now quite a common method of fishing, which predominates across much of our inshore waters, has a really damaging impact on certain areas of seabed. And we have collaborated with divers to show and capture footage, video footage, of the environmental harm that is a consequence of this fishery. And we're doing that in part to raise public awareness about some of the unsustainable impacts of the fisheries that are widespread in Scotland, but also to inform people about the kind of decisions that they can make as buyers of seafood. You know, they might want not to choose to buy scallops from dredge fisheries if they know that that's the environmental harm that these fisheries are causing. But this is a challenging issue because there are jobs involved in the seafood industry. And our view is very much that the government needs to show some vision and some political leadership on this front to work out how we transition from some of the unsustainable fishing that's currently quite prevalent in Scottish waters and transition to a more sustainable management for our fisheries. That's going to take money, time, political vision. And we are actively campaigning for that with the work that we do. We think there's a huge opportunity to relocalise our seafood in Scotland Huge amounts of fish, you know, you rewind, you know, over 100 years ago, we had huge booming fisheries for herring. A lot of that was consumed and eaten by people in Scotland. Now a huge amount of our seafood is directly exported to either, you know, international commodity markets or to the continent where it is prized 
you know, our shellfish is prized by France, Spain and Italy. And we think there's a huge opportunity to relocalise, re-domesticate the demand for Scottish seafood. And especially if we're managing our fisheries more sustainably, then that demand will align to the kind of things that people expect. So, yeah, I think there's been a lot of talk around how unsustainable fishing is. And yeah, we don't want to sugarcoat the situation. We think that there is, unfortunately, a lot of unsustainability in the way that we're harvesting seafood in Scotland. But that is not that it cannot be done differently. You know, Seaspiracy has highlighted a lot of these issues. We do not agree with everything that Seaspiracy has, has documented. We've written a blog about this. You know, we think it highlights some really important issues. But we do not agree that sustainable fishing is not possible. We completely respect that many regard fish as wildlife and should not be eaten. But we think that sustainable fishing is legitimate and a possibility. And that the urgency is to take the kind of management steps today so that we have viable, healthy fish populations in the future. And that fishing is part of that solution. It's a difficult time within the fishing industry right now. Brexit, Covid has played havoc with markets for Scotland seafood. Whilst that has been a major difficulty for many working in the sector, it's also an opportunity for the Scottish public to engage with the reality of our seafood sector and make demands on it to try and supply what we think is a latent demand for Scottish seafood. We think that not just in coastal communities, but actually in in cities too, there's a real interest in sustainable food, in the sustainable production of food, And one of the issues for fish and shellfish is that we export a huge amount of our seafood abroad. There's an opportunity to re-localise, re-domesticate that market, not entirely, but at least partially, so that fishers operating in Scotland can start selling more of their catch locally to Scottish and UK markets. That's a really exciting prospect and could go hand in hand with a growing awareness about the kind of sustainability measures that we need to take when we're managing our fisheries in the future. Fishing is a really important part of the highlands and islands. It's a major employer, certainly compared to other local authority areas, and it's culturally bound up in the fabric of many rural communities. And so the changes that need to happen with our fishing industry to make it more sustainable need to be basically developed and implemented in a fair way that ensures that people who are maybe affected by conservation measures have an opportunity to benefit from those conservation measures in the future. If we're able to recover fish stocks, if we're able to recover the habitats that fish populations rely on, that is a win-win in the future, but it requires a transition and a careful transition that really only government can help navigate. Well, that's quite a sobering reality of our seas and of the challenges of the fishing sector. We can't have a sustainable food system if we don't have this conversation. Open seas are doing a great job to build public awareness and inform consumers. And it is really important to remember that a just transition is key when we think of this sector. It's great that Nick is positive about sustainable fishing being possible and we need to be mindful of that. And as consumers, we do have the power of choice. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Highland Good Food podcast and you take a bit of time now to reflect on what you've heard. Highlands is full of great people doing amazing things and these stories throughout the series show that we can do hard things. I'd like to thank our guests Douglas, Birgit and Nick and a big thanks to our funders, Sustainable Food Places, Pebble Trust, 
and Transition Blackpile. And I'd also like to thank our wonderful editor, Rachel Butterworth. And thank you all for listening. And remember to make sure you don't miss out on any Highland Good Food news by going to our website, highlandgoodfood.scot and join the movement. You can also follow us on social media.